Podcast, Episode 136, Comreg and Transition Under Conquest. In Episodes 138 and then again in 139, we talked about how the Proto-Iron Age language of Wales morphed from Latin to Brythonic and then to Old Welsh, the Conquest. During this time of isolation and eventual cultural nationalism, it created a united language, which in the confines of Wales had very little to differentiate in regional variations, at least as far as the written word went, from the marches to the east, to the edge of Anglesey, to the south, to St. David, Cymreg was written with the same intent, with the same ideals, and to put it bluntly, with the same grammar. This, of course, made it difficult to know where things were written because you didn't have variations based on localized word usage or the way things were described, but it also showed early on that there was some consistency about the language in the way it was constructed and the way the written rules worked from one end of the nation to the other. Within that, however, we're going to talk about the transition from Old Welsh to Middle Welsh, and then from there to the more modern version of the language, at least into the later centuries of this last millennia. But in order to begin there, we need to go back and talk about what succeeded into Middle Welsh. During this period of epic poems, stories, and history, these were all created during this era of the Old Welsh. They were kept at the halls of power and in the monasteries in Wales. Much of what we know now and have in our collections comes from this era, such as the Chronicle of the Princes, the Black Book of Camarthen, and even the Mabinogion owe their written forms to this Old Welsh era of learning. As independence turned to conquest and English lords ruled the day, life in Wales and the language continued to adjust, and the bards and the clergy especially kept much of these ideas alive. In the face of English control and the use of English as the only acceptable way to deal with daily economic and legal life in Wales, the continued survival in the homes and the churches of Welsh was significantly important to both the Welsh and as to the language itself. Now, I want to clarify before we go too far, and every time I have these discussions about the language, I, I want to be clear. We are talking about Cymreg, not Welsh. Cymreg is the language. Welsh is just what we call it in English. And so while I may not say Cymreg, that's largely what I mean, but just for the sake of my written sanity, I guess, and the script, and also then the fact that, that it just makes some sense in English. I may not flip back and forth between the two, or I may willingly flip between each. So understand when I say Cymreg or I say Welsh, I mean the same thing. It's not different. And so don't, you know, I hopefully it doesn't confuse people and hopefully it makes sense and people won't feel like I'm giving one or the other some sort of precedence and and obviously we don't say français when we're talking about french we say french so 
that's that's probably what I'm going to lean into. But it's just so you're aware and it doesn't lead to either annoyance or confusion. I may interchangeably use the words, um, but nothing meant by it other than the fact that I'm interchangeably using the words. But anyway, all right, let's get on with this and get back into what we're talking about. As this Glyndur revival that we've been talking about over the last year began and the revolution gave so much hope and so much uh, aspirations to many, one of the things that I think a lot of people were looking at was their language and how it would once again predominate all facets of daily existence within Wales. Certainly much of what we would consider important in this period were revived at this time. And some of the later items that we have, some of the stories that come in this era, both historical and sort of antithetical of historical, where they're more legendary, come out of this era as well. And we do get a lot of very epic poetry being written by bards about Glyndor, for example, which survive this era and give this language much of its definition and shape and helps to keep the language vibrant in a period where it might not have survived normally. So as we go into this, it's we must, of course, understand that certainly much of what we consider important in this period was revived. But while saying that, the language of diplomacy during the war that went on and during the, the brief period where Glyndur was reigning as a government as opposed to just a rebel leader, he was still using Latin and French to do the basic conversations with people outside of Wales. And there's no mistake that this would be the case regardless. And that doesn't change the fact that the language was held as a strong symbol of an independent Welsh state or an independent Welsh society. And it kept it alive because of those things. And in the failure of this revolution, in the failure of Welsh independence, a lot of people wonder how did it survive? How did it thrive to the point where even into the late Victorian era, there was still, at least in some parts of Wales, a predominant group that spoke Welsh first and maybe didn't speak English hardly at all, except for in schools or in official places. You know, how did that happen? How did these pockets develop? And and how was it able to get through a point? And especially for an insular language where there's not, you know, a large amount of population population outside of the area that spoke that language. You know, you think of the way Spanish and English spread to the New World and French for that matter. They were brought there by citizens from the locations that that colonized those areas and they then would spread them to people within those areas as they took over and they became the predominant languages and in some extent destroyed some of the insular languages that had previously been there in the process of doing that. That's something that Welsh never really did. There are pockets of Welsh settlements, which we'll get to in a future episode, where the language was carried forward, but they're much more uh, 
contained and controlled compared to say, uh, like I said, the, in the other three examples where you see a massive outgrowing and outcropping of these languages. So how does a small language like Welsh survive this kind of thing? And why did it survive? I would argue it likely kept it from fading was the English tendency to treat the Welsh population as second-class citizens, to effectively remove them from any way of taking advantage of their position as subjects to the English crown. So, therefore, many felt no need to change. There was no desire to take on English cultural heirs because it gave you no advantage, especially when they removed the ability to declare yourself not Welsh anymore, to become an Englishman. And when you start to remove those kind of abilities and any sort of links to that, certainly for the upper classes and the middle classes, then it stops being useful to you. In the medieval world, where you might only move around once in your life, or maybe not even that, for a lot of peasants, this would likely find little time or opportunity for them to use the invader's language or even have need for the invader's language. As well, there would be populations in the Northwest especially, and in the West, that would specifically use the language as a point of contention, as a way to say, to hell with them, and keep the old ways alive. You have to keep in mind that they were perceiving the English at this point as still invaders and as interlopers and not as interlinked as they would be in other places. Like if you lived in the marches or you lived on English borderland areas, your conduct and conversations are going to be much more heavily influenced by the English because you're going to have to go to a market where there might be English speakers. You have to go to a port where there might be English speakers. And you have to carry on conversations in order to gain financial wealth, to sell your wares, to make the trade you need in order to survive, you know, either the spring or the summer or the winter, as the case may be. And all of those things would need English to be used. But in other parts of Wales, where your only interactions are largely with other Welsh people, it's unlikely to be the case. And then if you add to it a sense of cultural pride, which will be coming more and more in this circumstance, then that would also reinforce the idea that learning the, in quotes, invader's language doesn't serve you well and doesn't help you in any way because your you know 90% of your conversations are happening in Welsh your day-to-day -day living is happening in Welsh your prayers are in Welsh everything you think about and do is in Welsh so you don't have to do anything in English you don't have to know anything there isn't a modern education system where you go to classes and you learn English or there is, you know, not cultural indoctrination classes as there might be under a dictatorship in other countries in our modern sense. Nowadays, that, that might happen. But back in those eras, that wasn't a thing that was done. Like, the education of poorer classes was just not important to most people. So unless you were in the clergy or you were a noble, your education standards were basically if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem let me bend your ear a little bit 
to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Less than nothing in a lot of aspects what you learned you learned from home and that kind of created and held your worldview so for a lot of day-to-day welsh living in the middle ages and even i would argue into the renaissance you would have very little reason to use english because unless you've run afoul of the law you're paying your taxes because the kings come asking for more money you know if the sheriff is english which largely they were then you'd be dealing with that but if you were just day-to-day dealing with local farmers and local tradesmen you're just not going to speak anything other than welsh and you have no need to speak english in fact what we find is that when the welsh start to move out of wales when they start to go into england when they start to go off to the new world into the colonies that the british were creating they suddenly find themselves speaking a lot more english and a whole lot less welsh 
And those are the points and the situations and circumstances where the dysphoria, the groups that are emigrating, actually lose the language in the process, unlike what happens back at home, where the language becomes more and more important in certain areas and less and less important in others. As we'll see throughout its history, Welsh as a language survives better in the areas that are isolated from English contact on a day-to-day -day basis. And so the North and the West specifically survive much stronger and much more fluently than, say, as you get closer to the borderlands, as you get closer to the marches. And that will remain the case right up to the present day. The, the language is still strongest in the West and the Northwest. It's still those pockets that continue and keep the language. Um, not to go too far into my own family history, but I mean, if you look back at, say, my grandparents who moved from Northwest Wales, they spoke Welsh first. They spoke English as a second language, and it wasn't until they moved to Canada that it became effectively their first language, and that's all they taught their kids. Welsh was something you only talked to the old country people about when they came over. It's not something you kept during your day-to-day -day life, because once you moved over to Canada or America or wherever, the language that you're living in becomes the language you speak. And we see that quite often with uh, immigrants coming to the new countries, they will pick up the language slowly maybe, but by the time of the second generation, the language that they've been brought up in will become more important to them and more useful to them. Thus, the secondary language or the language of the home starts to slip away. And in some cases especially, just ceases to exist. Like my father, for example, knew three Welsh words in his entire life and that came about because he lived his entire life in Canada. He never ever went back to Wales. He never talked to his family from Wales that often. And so for him, that language was something that he just never felt necessary to keep or speak. So that's where the danger zone comes from. And the reason why people like me are completely oblivious to Welsh and have to relearn it because we don't have any links to it. And that's, I guess, the difference that you have when you have a colonist nation like England and Spain and France that are not only coming to these countries and, and existing there, they're coming to the countries to dominate and to run all levels of society. And so thus their language becomes predominant and it's their language that runs the area. And that's effectively what was done in Wales, except they didn't push it enough to actually push Welsh out. And so Welsh continued to linger at levels that were lower than the upper classes and the middle classes, and it continued to survive because of that. And one of the big ingredients that will keep it alive is the printing press and the developments in the Reformation and how those things actually changed Wales and Welsh from being a verbal language to being a written language that carried forward and survived much stronger than it probably had any right to be under those circumstances. Middle classes, at least into the 15th century as it ended, many began to feel the need to learn English so that there was still movement among those 
in these lower nobility and middle classes to move up the chain, and to do so, you needed to be educated in English. As the legal and economic levers of language gained more and more English speakers, the clergy, on the other hand, had to remain largely Welsh-speaking in this period. How else could they converse with their parishioners? And this would remain the case through the Middle Ages. Change for Welsh and for the dominance of English over the Welsh came through the Act of Union of 1536. We'll take a look at this in great detail later, but to give it a bit of a short form, it created a more level playing field for the people of Wales in public life. Though not complete, it did make it easier for Welsh people to gain power and prestige, to rise up the English ranks, and in so doing, formalized English control that it eluded it to some extent previously with those classes that held on to their culture as part of their defiance of the control set in place by English people dominating key positions throughout Wales to that point. Professor Davies, who I have had a lot of respect for and has been predominant in writing about this, points out that in combining the Welsh in England, it meant that there was no more advantage to being English, and in a way, it meant that Welsh could hold on to their culture because they did not have to go English to survive or thrive in a newly united England and Wales. Another aspect of formalizing Welsh was the creation of the Welsh biblical translation. This came out of the Reformation and, of course, the printing press, as Henry VIII and his successors sought to go away from the Catholic traditions, and one of the ways to do that was to have your own translation of the Bible in the local language. Even as this was happening in the south and east in the trading centers around the borderlands and on the Bristol Channel, English went from being simply the predominant language to being the only language spoken, and the differences between the two sides of the cultural divide lessen greatly. In the Tudor period, however, there were still men of power who were versed in Welsh, as they were in English. The Earl of Pembroke, for example, William Herbert, was considered to be much more fluent and felt better speaking Welsh than English. Yet, he was one of Elizabeth I's leading nobles. The Herberts in later generations would still be taught Welsh. As Edward Herbert said, his parents thought it fit to send me to some place where I might learn the Welsh tongue, as believing it necessary to enable me to treat with those of my friends and tenants who know no other language. So, in other words, the monolithic Welsh population weren't able to converse with English fully yet, and thus the nobles and the merchants that were of Welsh descent that were gaining power still need to at least be able to converse in it to deal with their own, I don't want to say subjects, but in effect, I guess that's what they were. And that meant that they had to deal with these kind of things. Yet, within 250 years of the Act of Union, much of the gentry in Wales spoke little to no Welsh. Most even considered it a sign of success and achievement not to speak Welsh. It was now the language of the lower classes and considered a sign of a lack of refinement in the Victorian period. 
Because of this, the patronage of the Welsh bardic traditions collapsed. The tools that had kept the Welsh language afloat under older traditions also collapsed. In other words, the influence of the nobility to the Welsh language, the writing of the Welsh language, ceased, and it was only the clerics and the lower classes and the tradesmen who kept the language afloat and alive and surviving. Yet, even still, politicians a growing portion of English control now, had to appeal to the masses in these eras, and in order to do so, had to appeal to these mono-Welsh speakers. And so knowing and understanding Welsh and being able to debate in Welsh was still important in those periods. As well, legal acts and parliamentary declarations were loosely translated into Welsh, largely apparently with terrible results. In the midst of this change, one other thing started to happen beginning in the Georgian period, beginning, of course, once again by the nobility and changing dramatically across all of Wales within that same period of time. This saw the end of the use of patronymics in names, in other words, being called son of your father, son of their father, son of their father. These kind of things which had been standard in Wales up until now, with the exception of those who were working with and influenced by the English traditions, were now starting to go by the wayside. More and more, official documents in all parts of Wales saw children using English first and last names. The use of Welsh names were also anglicized, such as David, John, and Rhys, which were very much the Welsh names Dafid, Sion, and Rhys. Surnames, also in English, were now becoming used more and more in Wales, and you can still see their predominance of these English naming conventions today in Jones, Williams, Roberts, for example, or in other ways where names in Wales were anglicized like Price, which is a derivative of Ap Rhys, or Powell, which is a derivative of Ap Hul, and Lloyd, which came out of Lloyd, and Bowen, which was, of course, Ab Owen. These changes began in the gentry in the 17th century, but became much broader across Wales throughout the later centuries, and by the 19th century especially, were commonplace. If you look in the censuses, in the literature, in the documentation across all of Wales, in the clergy and elsewhere, the use of English was now pretty much standardized, and the use of English name conventions was also there. While, yes, there were still the Gareths and the the Rhiannons and those kind of names, it was much more common to see Elizabeth, Thomas, and that kind of idea being used. This would have aspects of effects on the language as a whole, because now you have Welsh people talking to their neighbors and their friends, but using English terminologies. More and more English would slip into the language in part because of this, and this is pretty normal when you look at how this works when you have the language of officialdom being in one language and the language of everyday living in another. The likelihood is you're going to slide more and more 
English or predominant words into your language. We see this as the case in places like, say, if you look at uh, the Quebecois in in uh, areas of Canada, they have a lot of English words that have slipped into their vernacular, which don't happen in places, say, like Paris or in France as a whole, just because it's easier to use or just because it's normal to see it. So you start to use it more and more. And we see this with some of the Welsh phrasing. And we'll see this more and more as time goes on, of course, as Welsh translators and Welsh language advocates have to then look at English words and try and figure out how to define them in Welsh because things like a computer didn't exist before the modern era. There wasn't a name for it in the Welsh language. So you now have to translate it no different than if you were in France or Germany or any of these other places. Like if you look in Japan, a lot of English words get sort of a Japanese way of saying them rather than actually being changed into a Japanese form of the word. And so that is happening and was happening in Welsh. And it's something that is normal in languages that continue to grow and continue to try and thrive. They will import things, just as English is a Germanic language that has imported French, Norman, Viking languages, all sort or Norse languages, I should say more correctly. There's other influences coming out of even more language changes. We see this in America and in Canada, where being close to Native Americans, some of those words have slipped into the vocabulary used here in naming conventions for towns and cities. Mississauga, as an example, or Ottawa, or places like Missouri. These are names that have come out of Native American tribes or chiefs that get used in modern vocabulary, like the Mississippi, which now we don't think of as different, but don't have their naming origin in English. And so it's keep that in mind when we talk about these kind of things in later times and how much derided they get by some English speakers. And yet we do it as, as English speakers. We do the exact same thing. So it's, it's baffling if you just think about it from that aspect and that concept. And English is such a language of mix and mash of Latin, of French, of Norse, of all of these various, and in fact, and you can include Brythonic in this, that to say that English isn't influenced and changed constantly is a ridiculous statement. So to say that Welsh can't be changed and influenced by the uses of words that have come out of other countries is a baffling, foolish thing to say. And without going political is something that I think, think people need to reflect on a little bit before they make comment on it. So while we haven't dived fully deeply into the changes that we'll see in the language, just from understanding how officialdom affects it, you can see how slowly but surely Welsh writing 
Welsh understanding and Welsh discussions are now happening at a level which is very different than how they had happened previous to this. And importantly, it is influencing how Welsh is growing, thriving, and continuing in ways that I don't think anybody would have anticipated if you went back into the, the development of Welsh out of Brythonic. And uh, with that, I'm going to leave that for today. Thank you for everyone who came out to our charity stream, which happened last week as this episode comes out. Uh, we reached our goal, which is tremendous. And I would like to thank you all for listening once again. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at welshhistorypod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast and just send me a line and ask, you know, if you have questions you can ask, if you have, you know, things you want to bring up, corrections you want to put in place, there's a good way to do that. Uh, either way, until next time, we'll talk to you later. Take care. Have a great day. Goodbye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.